This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 118, the eighth part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will share strange stories about the love scandals that became public in the sport. Perhaps this is the tabloid episode of early ultra-running. Guess what? I've authored and published a book on ultra-running history, now available on Amazon, entitled Frank Hart, the First Black Ultra-Running Star. In 1879, Hart broke the ultra-running color barrier and then broke the world's six-day record with 565 miles, fighting racism with his feet and fists. I'm sure you're going to like this book. Find it on Amazon. Search for Frank Hart, that's H-A-R-T, Frank Hart Davy Crockett, and you should pull it up. In the late 1800s, ultra-runners, called pedestrians back then, both male and female spent a prolonged time away from their homes and families as they traveled to compete in races across America and in England. As with other professional athletes and celebrities, even in our day, love scandals would at times emerge that made for popular gossipy news stories. Many of these ultra-runners became instantly wealthy and had numerous adoring fans and friends who wished to be part of this new, wild, free-spending lifestyle. Some of these love scandals were covered in newspapers all over the country. In 1879, Fanny Edwards of New York City burst upon the stage of pedestrianism when she succeeded in walking 3,000 quarter miles in 3,000 quarter hours. But along with her fame came scandal. She became quickly involved in a love triangle. And some of us get stuck in a love triangle. She had been seen in public with a married man, Frank Leonardson, for several months in the New York City area. Frank served as her trainer and was described as very good looking. Fanny was described as quite young below the medium height and of slight 100 pounds, almost fragile physique. She had large, lustrous brown eyes, an abundance of dark hair, and well-rounded features, suffused with the glow of health. In March 1879, Frank's wife of seven years, Delia, filed for abandonment and wanted some of his estimated $800 of pedestrian winnings for the support of their two children. Frank was arrested and a trial was held. Leonardson admitted the marriage and desertion, but said he could hardly support himself, but was willing to do whatever he could for his wife. He claimed that he had only earned $31 as Fanny's trainer, but made no mention of his previous success as a pedestrian. It was learned during the hearing that Miss Edwards induced him to forsake his wife for her company, sharing her earnings with him. She had even hired his lawyer for the trial. The judge ruled that Frank must pay his wife $200 and pay $3 per week for alimony. Fanny screamed, Is that all? With delight and surprise. She then bounded, brushed past Mrs. Leonardson, and offered her gold watch and chain, her necklaces, bracelets, and earrings to the court as security to have Frank released. 
the judge said. The court is not a pawn shop for lovers. She then wrote out a check for $200 and $156 for a year of support and said, That's cheap enough. I'd pay $1,000 to be rid of her. Delia was left in a corner of the courtroom, quote, crying as if her heart would break. <laughs> and some of us get stuck in a love triangle. Frank and Fanny Edwards went off together. To get away from the scandal, they went to California to compete. Fanny Edwards was not through destroying marriages. William A. Cousins of Greenpoint, Brooklyn, New York, who was called a well-known pedestrian, was arrested on November 18, 1880 in Brooklyn for having two wives. He was described as, quote, a well-built young man of 22 or 23 years and of rough exterior. Cousins married Isabel M. Reamer on October 11, 1880. She was, quote, a handsome bride of 18. Isabella had known Cousins for a year, and on her wedding day, he brought Fanny Edwards to her mother's house, announcing that he had selected her to be a bridesmaid. He explained that Miss Edwards being a pedestrian, he had made her acquaintance in a professional way. But after only four days of marriage, because of serious arguments between the two, Cousins deserted Isabella and sought to marry Edwards. Isabella said, The next week he came to see me and asked to see the certificate of marriage, which as soon as I gave it into his hand, he tore it up and burned it. He then said that that ended our marriage and that I need not trouble myself any further with him, as he was going to marry Miss Edwards. He then went away. I was astonished, but I could do nothing. On his next visit to Isabella, he brought Edwards and let her know that they were engaged to be married. Isabella said she was his lawful wife and that she would fix him if he married again. She said, He threatened to knock me down and kill me if I interfered with him in any way. Miss Edwards heard all and simply said that our marriage was of no account now that the certificate was torn up and that she would marry cousins anyway as she was more suitable for him. He again threatened my life if I troubled him and went away with Miss Edwards. The two pedestrians married about three weeks after their cousin's first marriage on November 2nd, 1880. He then visited Isabella again, laughed and threatened Isabella some more, but she was determined to see him arrested. With some detective work, she found the reverend that had married the two and obtained a warrant for a cousin's arrest. Cousins was arrested, couldn't pay the $1,000 bail, and was held in jail until the trial. At the trial, Reverend Francis Schneider, a pastor without a church, testified that he remembered marrying Cousins and Edwards. Edwards testified that her real name was Francis Alvina Worms. She denied that she had been married to Cousins and had never seen the Reverend before. She had lived as a boarder at the Cousins' house for two months. She was then caught in several lies, even denying that she had been known as Fanny Edwards. She denied ever meeting Isabella and that she wasn't the bridesmaid at her wedding. Witnesses and a marriage certificate showed that Edwards' testimony was full of lies. The defense claimed that the reverend ran a, quote, 
unreliable matrimonial bucket shop performing 400 marriages per year, and that Isabella's arrest warrant was just motivated by her own jealousy. The judge decided to refer the case to the grand jury. Two months later, in January 1881, Cousins was acquitted of bigamy because of a lack of proof. Cousins' first wife made a scene by denouncing him and predicted that evil would befall him. Isabella was evidently correct. Only two months later, Cousins was killed on March 18, 1881, when he fell from a scaffold while painting at Bayonne, New Jersey. Fanny Edwards disappeared from the sport. Isabella would remarry, have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and die at the age of 81. The marrying parson would die in 1903 after performing more than 15,000 marriages. Getting romantically involved with trainers seemed to happen often. Mary, or May Marshall, was one of the most famous and successful female pedestrians of the 19th century. Marshall's true name was Tryphenia Lipsy. She was married to Thomas Lipsy. After they moved to Chicago, they experienced financial troubles, which motivated her to try pedestrianism in 1875 using the stage name of Mary Marshall. After experiencing great pedestrian success and being away from her family during long road trips, in 1877, Marshall, aged 36 and still married, got romantically involved with 23-year-old pedestrian George F. Avery of Massachusetts. He had been Marshall's trainer. But to Marshall's dismay, Avery soon left her for the much younger pedestrian, Bertha LaFranc, who was only 18 years old. The scandal went public because Avery walked out with LaFranc when Marshall was competing in Massachusetts. They had quite an argument. She failed in her walking efforts. The scandal resulted in the breakup of Marshall's marriage to Thomas Lipsy. Avery and LaFranc married, and about a year later she gave birth to a girl. Avery then worked as LaFranc's trainer. Well, Marshall stopped competing for a time because she was with child and gave birth to Stonewall Lipsy in 1878. She returned to competition, giving the excuse that she had been away because of yellow fever, evidently trying to keep the birth a secret. She continued to perform for several years in various publicity stunts, including races against skaters and people pushing wheelbarrows, and died in 1911. A common question in the family had always been whether her son Stonewall Lipsy was a product of Marshall's marriage or of her affair with Avery. Marshall's great-great-grandson solved the mystery with a DNA test, confirming that he was also a descendant of pedestrian George F. Avery, who died in 1884 of heart disease. On June 25, 1884, a six-hour race was held in Atlanta, Georgia, which was won by Atlanta's champion Alf Prater with 37 miles. James William Ford, a furniture salesman, and Macon Georgian's pedestrian champion was the favorite, but Ford quit unexpectedly mid-race. Some suspected that he threw the race on purpose, but a much more bizarre reason soon surfaced. During the race, it was said that as he passed a certain point on the track, a lady with a pleasant face 
but plainly attired, was observed to lean forward and whisper words to the champion. Ford was noticeably startled, but kept up his pace. When he came by again, the lady said, You shall be arrested before nine o'clock. Ford went to his tent, followed by the lady, and he soon quit the race, claiming that he had been taken ill. The lady made her story public to reporters, and it was carried nationwide in the newspapers. She was Molly Kerr, a 22-year-old worker at a paper bag factory in Atlanta. She claimed that she was Ford's wife, who he abandoned and had not seen for five months. She said that she had eloped with Ford six months earlier, but after only a few days, she returned to her parents' home in Atlanta, where she discovered that Ford had another wife, Fanny White, and two children who lived only two blocks away. Ford came to her and at first denied that he was married to Fanny. Molly said, I loved him, but he has blighted my life. After five months, she decided to have him arrested. She said, I hate to send him to the penitentiary on account of his two little children. The whole scandal was played out in public in the newspapers. It was a she-said-he-said story worthy of tabloids. Ford soon confessed that he had two wives, but claimed that Molly had gotten him drunk and then married him. He then painted a sinister picture of her. He said after she had gotten his attention during the race that she followed him to his tent. When I laid down my tent, she rubbed my head and said, You have got to pay me, and well too. You have ruined me, and I am going to have you arrested at once. He begged her to wait until he finished the race. She refused and said, You know you can't beat Prater, and I never intended that you should beat him in this race. I'm going to marry him. He brought me to the match and paid my way in. According to Ford, he and Molly left the race together and returned home. Molly expressed her love for him, but knew he didn't really love her, so she still demanded that he pay her so she could get a divorce. Finally, he agreed to give her money for their divorce and then left, hoping to never see her again. Molly did not let it rest there. The public was hungry for details of this strange scandal. Molly was summoned to appear before the county grand jury to indict Ford for bigamy. It is presumed that Ford's defense lawyers would claim that he was drugged when they were married. An Atlanta reporter dug deeper, interviewing many involved. He interviewed Jabez White, the father of Ford's first wife. He claimed that Ford and his daughter, Fanny White, had been married for six years. He had suspected that Ford had been unfaithful with Molly, went to see her, and found out that she was also married to Ford. He told this shocking news to his daughter. She wrote to Ford and essentially told him to get lost. Her father said, The next train brought him to Atlanta, and when he entered the house about sunrise, I got up and hunted for my pistol to kill him, but my wife had hidden it. I then had Ford arrested. My daughter went crazy and her physician said if I didn't release Ford, she would lose her mind. White decided to drop the charges, but his daughter remained ill. Finally, the reporter interviewed Ford. He claimed that he had never formally married Fanny White, so actually did not have two wives. That was a lie. His valid marriage license on file was proof. He even tried to deny the race incident, hoping the public scandal would go away. He claimed that the lady at the race was just trying to get him to go out with her. He said, It would take more than one woman to get me off the track. 
He claimed falsely that it was the first time he had met Molly Kerr, and that he had quit the race because he drank some champagne by mistake, and that it made his stomach revolt. No report was found to indicate that the bigamy trial was ever held. Ford returned to his first wife, Fanny, and they moved to Macon, Georgia. About three years later, in 1887, he returned to Atlanta for a quick visit and again was arrested due to a warrant issued by a furniture dealer, J.W. Hinman, who had been waiting for a chance to force Ford to pay him $75 that he said he owed him. He got an arrest warrant to be issued for bigamy and theft. Ford turned himself in, determined to fight the bigamy charge. Molly Kerr refused to testify in court. She had completely backpedaled on the claim that they were ever married. In a letter, she stated, If Ford and herself were ever married, that they were drinking at the time, and she knew nothing of it. She wrote that the complainant, Hinman, had previously approached her about a plan to blackmail Ford. Ford settled the case by paying $70 to Hinman and court costs. Hinman withdrew the warrant. So what really happened? We are left to guess. Molly Kerr continued to live in Atlanta for many years. Fanny White was indeed Ford's wife, and they stayed together for many years until she died in 1931. Together they raised five children. Ford died at the age of 89 in 1943, a well-respected citizen of Macon, Georgia, and owner of a furniture company. Run away with me. In 1879, Charles A. Harriman, age 25, was a shoemaker from Massachusetts. His ultra-distance experience was recent, but impressive, breaking the existing walking 100-mile world record with a time of 18 hours 48 minutes. With no six-day experience, he entered the third Astley Belt six-day race in New York City and was accepted. A week before the race, Harriman trained in Central Park and stayed in the St. James Hotel where he flirted with Katie Stackhouse, the beautiful wife of the St. James Hotel steward, George W. Stackhouse. She was described as, quote, a handsome brunette of about 22 years of age. During the March 1879 race, the very tall Harriman was a fan favorite among the women and received many bouquets of flowers from them. Katie was among his most enthusiastic admirers and would go each day to watch him run, quote, casting bewitching glances. <laughs> For his final day, she made him a red, white, and blue sash that he wore around his waist. He ended up placing third with 450 miles, winning $3,679 valued at $105,000 today. After finishing his race, Harriman had to be carried to a carriage back to St. James Hotel. A day after, he looked well and was being cared for by devoted Katie. She carried dainties to the weary pedestrian and relieved the heavy hours by reading to him. It is said that by these means a tender feeling sprang up in the bosoms of both. After he recovered, he was seen around New York City on the streets with Katie. They were noticed riding together in Central Park and visiting places of amusement. Mr. Stackhouse started to suspect something was going on and found them together at a masquerade ball. Katie said of her husband, He was like a crazy man. He raved and swore and picked me up bodily and threw me into a carriage and, and, and home we went. As Harriman went on a southern pedestrian tour, the two wrote letters to each other. 
In July 1879, Katie went to visit her parents in Philadelphia, but went missing after a few days. She ran off to join Harriman in Richmond, Virginia, where Harriman was competing. Her husband hired a private detective to track her down. She was finally found with Harriman in Medford, Massachusetts. They had been staying together at the Eagle House Hotel, and she was registered as Katie Wilson. The lady was dressed in the height of fashion. Her dress had a long trail, her gloves had 14 buttons, her bracelets were large, and she wore a ring with seven diamonds. She dined with her gloves on. You gotta love these descriptions. Stackhouse went to Medford and found the two together at the Mystic Hotel. He also discovered love letters between the two. Stackhouse filed for divorce and also filed a suit against Harriman for $10,000. He was successful in freezing Harriman's bank account. Once Katie learned that the scandal went public and that Harriman couldn't spend his money, she returned home and begged to be forgiven and taken back by her husband. She also wanted Harriman's money freed up. Stackhouse refused to accept her back. Mrs. Stackhouse on her knees again implored forgiveness and again was denied. Finding her husband obstinate, she left. He sold all her belongings, including her piano. Stackhouse started out armed with a six-shooter and determined to perforate the amorous pedestrian as soon as he could discover his whereabouts. Harriman was arrested and posted a bail for $5,000. Katie told the press that she had been an abused woman. She threatened to prosecute her husband for confiscating her belongings unless he would abandon his suit against Harriman. Evidently, three months later, a settlement was reached, quote, through mutual friends, and Stackhouse withdrew the suit and was likely much richer. Run away with me. Harriman and Katie Stackhouse quickly got married. She became a fiery, staunch defender of her new husband. A year later, she horsewhipped a Mr. Ladd for making offensive remarks to Harriman. She was arrested for assault and fined $5. Harriman continued to compete into the late 1880s, traveling to several countries. At some point, he joined the Texas Rangers and was seriously wounded in a battle with outlaws. He claimed that he was also shot at the Battle of Wounded Knee, where Sitting Bull was killed. Katie sued for divorce, charging Harriman for deserting her and failing to provide support. He returned to Maine in 1897, and into his late 50s, he put on walking exhibitions. Late in life, he became an evangelist pastor. He died on March 14, 1919, at the age of 66, of Bright's disease, and was survived by, quote, a second wife and five children. Elsa Van Blumen became a famous pedestrian. As a child, she was said to be, quote, a young girl so delicate in health that physicians told her that unless she left and sought a drying atmosphere, she would not live long. So the family moved to Rochester, New York, where a doctor told Elsa that she needed to walk daily. Her health improved, and she was discovered by Bert Miller, who started to train her to compete as a pedestrian. She began her career in April 1879 when only 16 years old, attempting to walk 100 miles. She was described as a young lady of some 5 feet 4 inches in height and weighing not far from 125 pounds 
some 18 years with ringlets that are quite pretty. Her appearance is attractive and modest in the extreme. A few months later, Von Blumen walked at Hillsboro, Ohio, attempting to walk 100 miles in 27 hours at the music hall. Miss Blumen made a good impression upon her audience. She is good-looking and ladylike, full of pluck, and possesses great powers of endurance. She was neatly and appropriately costumed, and walks quite gracefully. During this exhibition, trouble brewed. The wife of her manager-trainer, Bert Miller, became very jealous of the attention that her husband was giving to the very young Von Blumen. The result was a very public, quote, grand old role among them that created great excitement among the citizens of the city. The manager's wife and Miss Von Blumen became reconciled the next morning. The Miss Von Blumen seems to have the sympathy of our citizens, and no imputation against her character are intimated. It is an unfortunate affair all around, as the entertainment was drawing full houses and giving great satisfaction. Von Blumen finished her 100 miles as promised. Miller continued to be her manager. There actually was something between the two, because he later left his wife and the two were married. Bert Miller became infamous for the quote, Miller Mile, when it was discovered that he had been cheating measurements for Von Blumen using a mile that was 660 feet short. The plan was hire a reputable city surveyor, have him mark out on the floor of the hall a path, and get his official certificate. Thereto then, as soon as he goes home, rub out his marks, lay down a different path, 660 feet shorter each mile. Von Blumen later became an incredibly famous endurance cyclist and rode 1,000 miles in six days in 1881 on a high-wheeled bicycle and continued to ride into her 70s. She later became known as Mrs. Caroline Roosevelt and claimed that she was the widow of two Civil War veterans, cousins of Theodore Roosevelt. She died on June 3, 1935 at the age of 72 in Rochester, New York. Well, that is just a few of the many scandals that happened in ultra running during the 1800s. Stay tuned for more ultra running stranger things. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs> <laughs>